Hello, hello! Welcome back to Lofi's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I'm reading through the enormous library books that you see buried behind my squid back there, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. I decided to switch up the usual review of Salem and do it in January instead of October, making this week's book of the week. A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Trials and the American Experience by Emerson W. Baker. Uh, the accompanying cocktail comes from this book, Spirits of the Otherworld by Alison Crawback and Reese Everett. And I'm making up The Witch's Cradle. It is one ounce of gold rum, a half ounce of cherry liqueur, a half ounce of coffee liqueur, two dashes of the bitter truth roots drops or dashes, or in my case, chocolate bitters, because I did not have time to order the other type, and one ounce of fresh coffee. Uh, so let's do this. Now I did decide to do the chocolate bitters because the underlying flavor profile, according to their description, is chocolate. So I thought, eh, that'll enhance it. It won't make it worse at any rate. So let's see here. Why am I reading this book now and not in October? I mean, witches are scary. Salem itself has embraced the whole witch stereotype and make ha made Halloween all about witches, basically. Well, I went with January because even though Salem has rebranded itself over the last several hundred years as embracing that witch stereotype, making it Witch City, all of October is dedicated to Halloween, witchy celebration, all in celebration or remembrance of the 25 innocent lives lost as a result of the 1692 hysteria that embraced Salem Town and Salem Village. All of that hysteria started in January of 1692, hence my decision to read it now instead of later. So, January 1692, the daughter, uh, Betty Paris, and niece, Abigail Williams, of Reverend Samuel Paris of Salem Village, started having hysterical fits and quasi-seizures. Now, at first, Paris and his wife, Elizabeth, were not sure what was going on with their 9-year-old daughter and 11-year-old niece. They called in medical doctors and neighboring ministers, uh, Reverend John Hale, specifically to observe their symptoms and see what this might be. About a month later... While the Parises were at a neighboring village for a religious lecture, one of their neighbors, Mary Sibley, directed the Parises slaves, Tichiba and John Indian, to make a witch cake. Now, this is white magic, but any magic was prohibited under Puritan society. And when Paris found out about the witch cake, which is basically just rye bread baked with urine from the girls and then fed to a dog, the dog will then lead you directly to whoever is bewitching them. It was to basically, and this was done to determine where the attacks were coming from, but he traced the introduction of witchcraft to Salem Village to this incident. So even though it's white magic, completely illegal under Puritan law, and Mary Sibley got, well, she was not one of the ones hung, but she, she did not have an easy go of it from that point forward. So from this point on, more accusers joined, most famously Anne Jr. and Anne Sr. Putnam. Sr. was a surprise, since almost all of the afflicted girls were just on the cusp of or barely past puberty. The other known accusers included John Indian, who was the husband of Tichiba, and Bathsheba Pope, who I'll get back to in just a minute because she was kind of interesting. When the dust had settled from all of this, 156 people would be named in court documents as witches, an additional 16 would be named in private correspondences as witches, but never formally charged in court. Of the 172 named list, 20 would be ministers or members of ministers' families. 
uh, one minister, George Burroughs, would be among those executed. So that's pretty lengthy. Now, most people put the dead at 19 hung and one pressed to death. Baker lists 25 because he includes the five people who died in the absolutely grueling and inhumane jails while waiting for trial or even release. Uh, Fun fact, even if you were found innocent or pardoned by the governor, the jailer had to be paid and could and would keep you until your family posted bond. So isn't that a delightful way to go? I love these cups, but the little markings wash off way too easily. I hope I included in my recounting that one ounce of coffee is included in this. At least one person died in jail waiting after everybody had been pardoned, waiting for her family to scrape together the money for the to pay the jailer. Uh, and this was after everybody had literally been pardoned by Governor Phipps. So that's a absolutely miserable way to die. So those are the bare bone facts of what happened in Salem in 1692. And th- those are known, recorded, agreed upon, like no historian would doubt or say that that is not included. I think I need to shake this up a little bit. And that's a very succinct uh, retelling synopsis of what Baker manages in chapter one. And he does pretty solid, like he goes into this person was accused here, this person was accused here, these people were uh, executed at this point, and he does a very good job with that. And I just, you know, condensed it even more. Um, Baker then traces the origins of the panic even further back and provides a synopsis of the history of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The uh, short version of that history is that when the witch trials kicked off, the frontier, which at that time was Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and even Western Massachusetts, was wildly unstable. It was rocked by a series of Native American raids. Because the Puritans had been extremely handed with the other religious groups in the area, apparently in violation of their original charter, the Crown had revoked the original charter, leaving the colony's legal standing in question. Let's shake this up. Now, the new governor, William Phipps, had been assigned the colony, assigned to the colony along with the new charter, which, while arguably granted more freedoms generally, was not popular with the Puritans in the colony because it represented change, and the Crown was watching which on one hand I kind of understand. Nobody likes the government breathing down their neck. On the other hand, the Puritans needed watching. Uh, remember, everybody likes to say that they, they left Europe for religious freedom. Well, they left because they were seen as religious extremists, not because they needed more freedom. They, they were religious extremists. And um, among their extreme things, at one point, their religious laws named Quakers. Quakers, the pacifists, the friends, the ones who had the absolute unmitigated gall to see everybody as equal, which included women, as basically apostates. And if a Quaker was found proselytizing in the colony, he was stripped, tied to a cart, beaten, and forced marched out of the colony. And every town they stopped in between the town he was caught and the edge of the colony, he was beaten again. So the uh, extremely harsh treatment of the other religions was part of what brought the colony charter to the attention of the king back in England, or king and queen, technically. Oh my god, that is absolute heaven. Oh my god, that is so good. It's, um, kind of wonder what it tastes like with the other bitters, but the chocolate is amazing. So yeah, Puritans were not big on religious tolerance. But here's an interesting fact. Not one of the accused witches was a Quaker. So by the time this all went down, the Quakers were seen as essentially sacrosanct by the Puritans, not because the Puritans agreed with them, but because they didn't want the crown interfering anymore. 
Although at least one Quaker, that's the Bathsheba Pope, who was the aunt of Benjamin Franklin, was happy to throw out accusations of her own against her Puritan neighbors. Now, Baker does float his own idea of what happened, because everybody has a theory, right? Everybody has their own theories and ideas of what happened, what led to this craziness and insanity, and why the girls made the accusations. And the above changes and dangers in Massachusetts lead the charge, in his opinion. And it was essentially a case of mass hysteria, which resulted in a marginalized group, i.e. the girls, who were seen as the lowest social status members in the heavily patriarchal Puritan society, being front and center and finally getting some attention and having their voices heard, no matter what kind of bullshit they were spouting. He does address the long-touted and popular theory that it was ergot poisoning that sparked the panic. And he dismisses it based on the symptoms didn't actually match. I mean, other than the hallucinations, the girls have no other symptoms, right? No other symptoms of ergot poisoning. Basically, the afflicted, who were all over Salem Village, would have needed to get their rye from a common source, which would not have been really practical at the time. I would add that as a farming community, they would have known what ergot was and would have taken steps to ensure no contamination hit their food supply. Additionally, long-term effects of ergot poisoning include gangrene in the extremities, and none of that was present in the afflicted. So I am personally inclined to agree that ergot was not part of it. Now, that doesn't mean they did not ingest some other hallucinogen to kick off the festivities, if you will. But one thing all historians agree on is that at some, that some level of fraud undoubtedly happened once the afflicted gained steam. Of course it did. It's all fraudulent. has to be. Uh, it's not that witchcraft didn't exist. In, in, in the 17th century, it was absolutely assumed, believed, and known to exist. Uh, they even assumed known and believed it existed into the 18th century. But after Salem, nobody was ever executed for it. So that represented a, a major change in how witches were persecuted, prosecuted, and dealt with. So why were the girls given so much credence? I mean, they were the lowest status members of society, right? I mean, unquestionably, they, they were unmarried girls, all underage. They, even though they were the ones doing the screaming, they didn't legally have a voice. The charges were actually filed by their uh, fathers, brothers, uh, you know, who, who, whatever male had dominance over their household. Well, Baker has a theory on that, too. So the judges had, at this point, actually provided a history of leniency in the courts, believe it or not. Yes, they had hung witches before, but they had recently overseen a piracy case, piracy, actual high season robbery, where most of the pirates were let off with fines rather than executed. Additionally, the judges were incredibly intertwined with heavy family bonds that tied most of them together through marriage and inheritance. So they had that, oh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And, you know, they'd feed back and forth and, and that would determine where they went. And they all voted as a block, essentially. So Baker thinks the judges, with their family bonds and wealthy backgrounds and Puritan beliefs, were looking for reasons that everything had gone to hell in Massachusetts with the increased Indian raids and the, uh, the, the sudden religious tolerance of those horrifying Quakers, the withdrawal of the Massachusetts Bay Charter, and uh, surely witchcraft must be to blame. That's what they decided. Had to be, right? So when the girls started screaming, the judges were like, ah, yes. And, and the first couple of victims were people that you would expect to be seen as, as witches. You had Sarah Osborne, Sarah Good. They were old. They were, they were known to be cantankerous. They were not afraid of voicing their opinions. And so 
it was readily accepted. And then from there, it just gathered steam and snowballed. And the judges accepted an absolutely absurd amount of bullshit evidence. Um, spectral evidence, if you've never heard of it. The girls claimed the accused were not directly attacking them. Their specters were. The touch test, the belief that the afflicted was touched by a witch causing the attack, the spectral fluid, or something like that, would flow back into the witch, releasing the accused from the attack. Both of these were, had been heavily questioned following trials in Europe, but were readily accepted by the court of Oyer and Terminer. And in the end, 19 were hung for witchcraft, including Rebecca Nurse and Mary, Mary Esty. Uh, now, these two ladies, along with their sister Sarah Cloyce, are arguably the most famous of the witches, along with Sarah Good. Why were these four the most famous? Well, Rebecca, Nurse, and Mary Esty were full members of the church. Uh, they were saints, all right, literally saints. They were known to be good women, so much good women, so much so that initially both were found not guilty. Then, when the judges sent the jury back to re-deliberate, both were found guilty. Nurse was excommunicated before being hung. Uh, the third sister, uh, the, the, initially they were all, it was uh, Rebecca Town, Mary Town, Sarah Town. So they were literally sisters, blood sisters. Uh, the youngest sister, Sarah Cloy, survived the trials and eventually led an exodus out of Salem to what became modern-day Framingham, Massachusetts. The story of the three women, and this is why they are the most, most well-known, was immortalized in, th in a PBS show in 1985 called Three Sovereigns for Sarah, starring Vanessa Redgrave as Sarah Cloyce. Incidentally, this is one of the most accurate portrayals of what happened in Salem. I mean, so much so that I, when I was reading certain parts of the book, I, I recognized almost all of it. Um, included in that show is the reason that Sarah Good is so famous. Right before they pushed off the ladder at Gallows Hill, she advised the Reverend Nicholas Noyce that she was innocent, saying, quote, you are a liar, and I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and if you take my life away, God will give you blood to drink. And those were, in fact, Good's last words. And the reason they are so famously remembered is that when Nicholas Noyce died on December 13, 1717, it was due to an inter internal hemorrhage that resulted in him choking on his own blood as he died. And so that kind of... They gave people pause for a moment and made them think, God, was she really a witch? Well, no, I, um, she was proclaiming her own innocence and, and unrepentant in the fact that she was an innocent woman being pushed off a ladder to slowly strangle to death. They didn't break necks then. The, the hanging was absolutely barbaric. Incidentally, all, all of the victims have since been proclaimed fully innocent. The, the, the most recent ones were actually in 2001. It took them that long to reverse the attainders and declare their full innocence, but they've all since been found and declared legally innocent by governor, governments over the last 300 years. Odd it took so long, but there it is. Now, other key victims include George Burroughs. He was a minister. This was shocking because if a minister can be corrupted, then anyone can be. But Burroughs was not a saint, and the Puritans believed he was nearly a Quaker, meaning an apostate or somebody who had renounced the true faith. Burroughs was among the executed. Uh, John Proctor, who was the employer of afflicted girl Mary Warren, initially advised and told the town that when he beat her and threatened her with more of the same, she was miraculously cured, which I'm not surprised by that. I'm the least bit surprised that beating somebody who was play-acting like that could result in a reversal of their sudden play-acting. As a result of this, incidentally, Warren also admitted that it was all play-acting, and once she did that, she was also accused of witchcraft. 
After spending a few weeks in jail, she realized it was better to be afflicted than accused and quickly resumed naming names and again became one of the afflicted. And nobody saw through this at the time. <laughs> now, the one who was pressed to death was Giles Corey. One of the legal proceedings under English law is that if the accused the, was that the accused had to agree to be tried by the court. Um, I, I think in the Three Sovereigns for Sarah, they said he failed to enter a plea. Well, that's not quite accurate. He, he entered a plea of not guilty, and the court then asked if he would acknowledge their right to try him, and he refused to answer that. And so it's for didn't, basically refusing to acknowledge their authority to oversee the matter. Corey was strapped to the ground with a board placed over him, to which more and more rocks were added, resulting in his death by crushing. The uh, poor souls who died in prison, waiting for their innocence to be proclaimed, or for their bond to be paid, are Lydia Dustin, who died March 10, 1692, Ann Foster died December 3, 1692, Sarah Osborne died May 10, 1692, and then Roger Toothaker died on June 16, 1692. The fifth, at least I, I think this is who Baker is referencing, is the absolute true innocent of all this horror, which would be Sarah Good's child. She was pregnant when she was incarcerated, and her baby boy died in prison. At least I think that's who Baker was referencing as the fifth innocent. Now, it all ended when Governor William Phipps returned from the war front in Maine to find that his wife was now among the accused, and he basically issued an executive order putting a stop to the court of Oyer and Terminer and then issued a unilateral pardon for everybody still in prison. But, note above, Anne Foster died in prison after the pardon because she had nobody to pay her bond. You know what I didn't include in here? Governor William Phipps returned from Maine and declared a stop to it all October 14, 1692. So yeah, Anne Foster died in prison after this unilateral pardon had been declared because nobody was able to pay her bond. And then Phipps made a grave error that basically ensured he would never be forgotten. And that Salem would never be forgotten. This whole sticky mess became a 432-year ongoing legacy of horror and sadness and tragedy in Salem because Phipps tried to cover it up. Uh, he allowed exactly one official publication written by Cotton Mather, who was one of the judges of the court, known as uh, The Wonders of the Invisible World, in which he effectively d defended spectral evidence and everything the judges had done. And this was mocked by everybody who read it, both contemporarily and most famously by Quaker Thomas Mall, who wrote a more accurate contemporaneous version called Truth Held Forth and Maintained, where he reported everything that happened as an outsider saw it, uh, including the ridiculousness of spectral evidence and the touch test, and published it under his own name, which was incredibly bold given how um, contentious relations were between the, the Quakers and the Puritans. Now, he published it in New York, which was outside the purview of the governor of Massachusetts. But copies, as one as they will, made their way rapidly to Massachusetts, where he was jailed and tried for libel. Now, Maul famously stood in court and pointed out that, yes, his name was on it, but anyone could have put it there. And this is a direct quote from the book. He actually mocked the court of Oyer and Terminer in his defense, saying that his name on the book was, no, was, quote, no more than the specter of evidence, end quote, for his name had been placed by the printer just as the devil might have used an innocent man's specter. And this got the jury to laugh. And the jury found him not guilty because the jury by this point was like, yeah, yeah, that was some dumb shit. I can't believe we all went along with that. 
So this is among the first attempted government cover-ups, and like all cover-ups, failed spectacularly. As the witch trials have resulted 300 years later in Salem becoming known as Witch City and embracing witch tourism, which sees multiple, like millions of visitors year round, but especially in Halloween during, during the month of October, when this is their time to shine, if you will. Uh, which I guess makes sense. I mean, you know, started in January, yes, but October 14th is when Phipps put an official end to it all. This book was quite well done, and it's broken down into the general history of the area, the afflicted, the accused, the judges, and the aftermath. And it provided a comprehensive timeline overview that allowed for, in that time in history, witchcraft was a foregone conclusion, all right? Uh, not that the accused were actually witches, just that witchcraft was known to exist and to be a very real concern in the 17th century. And, and I quite liked it. Uh, th this is one that I won't just put into storage waiting for a bigger library. I will keep it on my shelf so that I can reference it if I ever need to. And if you're looking for a broad overview of Salem 1692, I highly recommend it. And that's it for this week. So if you like what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you guys next Sunday. Bye.